hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by the podcast Empty Frames. In the early morning hours of March 18, 1990, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, Massachusetts, our fair city, fell victim to the most audacious art heist in modern history. In 81 minutes, two thieves dressed as policemen made off with 13 pieces of art with an estimated value of half a billion dollars. Works by Vermeer, Degas, and Rembrandt were stripped from their frames. Ugh, kills me. Never to be seen by the public again. And deep within the criminal underground, theories of their whereabouts and those who perpetrated the heist are abundant. In Empty Frames, hosts Tim and Lance will dive into the case, exploring it from all angles, along with investigators, reporters, art theft experts, and citizens. They will paint their own portrait comprised of the theories and the social and economic impact of the greatest unsolved art heist of all time. Subscribe to Empty Frames today, wherever you get your podcasts. And by Vault. So, passwords are a freaking hassle. I know this, you know this. I deal with this basically by having one password for everything, and also an unpassword protected document on my computer that is actually called Tomorrow's Passwords for all of the others. Oh crap, I totally shouldn't have just told you that. Crap. Vault, that's V-A-L-T, is here to help. Vault is a visual password manager. It captures all your existing passwords and locks them behind a set of memorable images that only you know. Vault trains you on those images using proven techniques from psychology and cognitive science, and the encryption is NSA approved. Download Vault for the Mac and iPhone today at vault.io slash lonely. That's V-A-L-T dot I-O slash lonely. And register to win a piece of Lonely Palette swag, like a mug, a water bottle, or a tote bag, signed by me. Again, that's V-A-L-T dot I-O slash lonely. Okay, so what am I seeing right now? Mm -hmm. I'm looking at a woman, and she's kind of comic style. The style is a comic book style, um, but like a closely cropped comic book. Um, It feels like it's just one panel, like maybe the panels previous were zoomed out. She has bright red hair, and she has red dots all over her face. She says, oh, all right. 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 (laughs) Could be like, ooh, all right, like in a good way or like a bad way. How would you say it in a bad way? You'd be like, all right. Kind of like, okay. Because also the oh, all right, you have no idea what it's about and it feels like you're missing something beforehand. I don't know, there's something really melancholy about it, even though it's like these really bright, intense colors. There's, I don't know. She doesn't look satisfied. She looks a little bit sad and a little bit resigned. Her eyebrows, mm-hmm. no, like literally, it's her, it's her eyebrows. And that kind of like look in, she's not really, really looking at anything. And I guess not many of us do when we're on the phone, but there's something about just kind of zoning out and staring into space. And her words kind of reflect that resignation in her face. Um, the three, there's three H's and then three dots. So it has this feeling that it, it goes off, it just goes off into the ether. 
and just kind of like a, she doesn't really want to be saying all right. The O was like a, a stalling mechanism on her part. I'm like, oh, all right. <laughs> it's like someone to call to say that he wasn't coming to pick her up for a date. Oh, all right. Mm. <laughs> for added <laughs> <Okay>. effect. <laughs> oh. This is The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses, one painting at a time. I'm Tamara Vishai. Episode 27, Roy Lichtenstein's Oh, All Right, from 1964. Back in the day at the Avishai breakfast table, between the cheese melted on toast and the cocoa I used to insist I drink out of a straw, there was the daily ritual of splitting up the newspaper. Parents would take the news of the day, Big Sister would take the art section, Big Brother would take the sports section, and Little Tamar would get the comics. It never occurred to me to want anything else. It seemed like the simplicity of the cartoons and the text bubbles was meant for kids. And it also never occurred to me until later in life that just because comics are easy to process, it doesn't mean they're easy to write. I've personally written enough songs by now, which is a different kind of writing, to be sure, but equally preoccupied with brevity, to realize how unbelievably challenging economy of language can be especially as it's constrained by the structure of meter, or, in a cartoonist's case, a limited number of frames. And it made me understand why the fictional cartoonist Caroline Duffy, heroine of my favorite late 90s NBC sitcom Caroline in the City, was so affronted when her oafish boyfriend Dell asked her, really, what's so hard about drawing a comic strip? I mean, it's just boom, 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 funny. Well, Dell, what makes drawing comics so hard, under the guise of something so simple that kids prefer them to text, is that you've got to pack an incredible narrative punch into those little boxes. The way cartoonists set scenes with opening frames or set up characters with a specific facial expression or a gesture are all in the service of giving the reader a point of entry into a little narrative universe And cartoonists have to walk the line between offering us a glimpse of a world that already exists, where we're just passing through and catching the figures in their moment of funny, and creating a sequence with a resolution, the funny part of the boom, boom, boom funny. In other words, we are meant to believe that there's a world where Garfield has woken up, decided it would be satisfying to kick Odie off the table, and then after he kicks Odie off the table, goes on with his day. But within that, all we actually see is the table kicking, a contained little narrative moment of its own. This universe creation doesn't really sound all that different from a painting. An artist has already made the decision as to what part of the story is being depicted within that frame, while we fill in the narrative gaps, 
But a key difference is that comics have text, captions, speech bubbles. Cartoonists aren't just artists, they're writers too. And when we read something, we have a very different expectation than when we just look at something. We expect a sequence and a forward momentum towards resolution, even if the comic is only one frame. And because comics most often deal in humor, whether it's jokes for children or incisive political commentary, that resolution is an unambiguous punchline. And there's a trade-off here. Where we gain the clarity of reading a comic, we lose the ambiguity of contemplating a painting and all of its multiple interpretations. Plenty of people will say that they don't quote-unquote get a Rothko, which only speaks to a Rothko's depth and complexity. There are a lot of ways to get him. On the other hand, you'd have to be pretty dense to not quote-unquote get a Garfield strip. It just isn't sophisticated enough to have multiple interpretations, which is kind of a relief given how many of them there are. So this is all to say that we know that the individual frames of comic strips need to be narratively dense. And we also know that taking the frame out of its sequence results in an image that is narratively incomplete. So what happens when you isolate one of these frames and, say, hang it on a museum wall? What happens when you decide that a moment in a comic strip is actually open to interpretation? Well, wham, bam, pow. Enter pop artist Roy Lichtenstein. Lichtenstein was born in 1923 and had his artistic moment in the company of fellow pop stars Andy Warhol and Jasper Johns, artists who had followed the tradition of Marcel Duchamp by delighting in taking something that we recognize, something pre-existing and so ubiquitous that it might as well be invisible, and tweaking its context so that we see it again, in a new and different way. Like, for example, putting a urinal in a museum, or treating a Campbell's Soup logo like it's fine art, or pointing out that powerfully symbolic flags are really just shapes and colors. And what Lichtenstein in particular was curious about was what happens when you subvert an audience's expectations of a comic strip, when you take something so mass-produced and disposable, both in its physical form and its plot lines, and give it the privileges of high art. What happens when you take away the punchline and give it back some ambiguity? You allow it to be contemplated. You get this freeze frame of a vignette with no supporting universe. And then we realize that we can't help but fill in the rest of the narrative, which is of course always going to be more nuanced and sophisticated than a comic strip narrative because real life is more nuanced and sophisticated than a comic strip. Left to our own devices, we'll always opt for a better story. And I should add that if this sounds familiar, it's because we explored this idea of an artist showing us just a glimpse of a narrative and anticipating that we fill in the rest when we looked at Christian Boltanski all the way back in episode two. There, it was a little girl's Holocaust narrative that we were filling in, 
And this is a light-hearted episode about pop art and comic strips, but the basic principle remains the same. So back to Lichtenstein, who, like all pop artists, was fascinated with this intersection of high art and low art. He loved comics in particular, and challenged by his son to draw Mickey Mouse, quote unquote, as good as the comics did, he explored the medium more deeply. He was struck by how the comic books of the 1960s tackled all the same subjects that you would find in paintings, love, war, angst, and yet pared them down to something so highly emotional and highly impersonal. People became stereotyped representations of their times. Comics of the 60s used stock signifiers of American mass culture. Automobiles, the beautiful people engaged in melodramas, the square jaws of the quintessential male, the blonde hair and agonized tears of the quintessential female. Don and Betty Draper, basically. And readers couldn't help but lose themselves in the vacuous, vicarious escape of an entertaining and easily forgotten narrative. Remember our recent foray into kitsch in episode 26. And hey, I get it. I can't even tell you how great a day it would be at camp when my care package arrived, bursting with the new Betty and Veronica comics. How pleasurable and forgettable that perfect literary sugar rush that the experience of reading them really was. And this sense of one and done have always been a part of the comic book experience. Yesterday's strips were always meant to line today's trash bins and make room for the new day's strip. We talked about this way back in episode three, when we looked at propaganda and political caricature, something also mass-produced and of its moment that only speaks to its moment and was always meant to be disposable. Great for politics, but, as it turns out, not so great for fine art that is meant to speak to the ages. So how does Lichtenstein elevate the comic to fine art? How does he take something meant to be so temporary and make it so timeless? Unlike so much art, the answer isn't in the details, but in the generalities. Take, for example, one of his most famous paintings, Drowning Girl, which depicts a woman's face and hand just about to go beneath the stylized waves. Her tears are indistinguishable from the splash as she plaintively moans, I don't care. I'd rather sink than call Brad for help. The painting is a closely cropped still from its source material, DC Comics Secret Hearts number 83. And the cropping, as we'll see, is everything. Because Lichtenstein takes something that is so narratively predictable, so set in stereotypes, and adds a sense of enigmatic nuance by removing the specificity of her prescribed narrative. Her original line was, I don't care if I have a cramp, which Lichtenstein shortened to the much more ambiguous, I don't care. In the original strip, her blonde, befuddled boyfriend is on a capsized boat behind her, allowing us the easy assumption that he's responsible for the whole mess. But his absence here allows her struggle and this mystery, what on earth could Brad have done that she'd rather die than ask for his help, 
to dominate a more interesting narrative that is taking place inside the viewer's head. The lack of specificity turns her into the timeless representation of all 1960s frustrated American womanhood. In other words, the actual Betty Draper. And we see the exact same thing happening when we dive into this painting, Oh, All Right, which, non sequitur fun fact, was once owned by Steve Martin. The canvas depicts a red-headed, blue-eyed bombshell caressing the phone with all the tenderness that we have to assume the person on the other end is denying her. The drawn-out H's and the ellipses of the oh, dot, 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 all right, dot, 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 speak to a sense of resignation. Although, to be fair, we can't actually be sure if she's sighing, grunting, or purring these words. When I interviewed viewers at the Art Institute, I was amazed at how many different ways this phrase can be interpreted. The canvas is based on a panel from Secret Hearts number 88 from June 1963, which shows the central figure as an equally pillow-lipped blonde who is responding to the jagged phone text bubble of her boyfriend breaking a date. All the ambiguity in the original is cleared up. Her name is Nancy, and he's got a quote-unquote important business appointment. And again, it's that kind of specificity that makes this original comic so disposable. True, we don't know if Nancy's boyfriend does this to her a lot, or the nature of this business appointment, but we do know enough to move on to the next page. But here, she's an unnamed heroine, stuck in a suspended state of disappointment. Not just the quintessential 60s bombshell, but the quintessential jilted lover, with any number of narratives that brought her to this place, and any number of resolutions. And this is where we realize how brilliant a storyteller Lichtenstein really is, how deft he was at picking the perfect moment of narrative ambiguity. John Updike described the work of Edward Hopper, another artist who played with this contrast between specificity and generalization, as, quote, always on the verge of telling a story. Lichtenstein is always smack in the center of a story, the middle panel of the strip, with its beginning and its ending left ambiguous, the absence ready to be supplemented by our own imaginations. And everything that we need for our imaginations to run down the field is provided in the simple, consternated line between her eyebrows. This is where we dive into Lichtenstein's aesthetic technique. He takes the minimalism of the comic book style and venerates how much can be expressed in such simplified visual language. He even co-opted as an artistic style the very same techniques that comic printers would use to save money, like reusing drawings, my beloved Betty and Veronica, of course, are the exact same face with just different hairdos, and cheap processing. Lichtenstein does this most explicitly with his trademark use of Bende dots. The Bende printing process was named for the illustrator and printer, Benjamin Henry Day Jr., who developed the technique in 1879. And to explain it, a quick word on printing. If you've ever changed a printer toner cartridge, you'll recognize the four process colors, cyan, magenta, yellow, and black, 
which act as the foundation for all of the rich blended colors that you'll ultimately get in a printed image. The Ben Day process printed these process colors as small colored dots that were either closely or widely spaced or overlapping, which created, from a distance, the appearance of solid color. It was a cost-effective way to fill in pulp comic books in the 1950s and 60s, especially large spaces like skin tone and backgrounds. These dots were a hallmark of Lichtenstein's style, meticulously reproduced. He was, after all, one of the few pop artists who was first and foremost a painter and could therefore capture this style with such precision and skill. And as Andy Warhol did with newspaper photos, Lichtenstein would clip the comic from the comic book, use an opaque projector to project the original drawing onto his canvas, trace the general image, and then go to work recontextualizing it, eliminating some details and emphasizing others. Of course, this technique and the results opened him up to critics accusing him of plagiarism, and worse, of copying kitsch, the low-art double whammy. Leaving aside the issues of plagiarism, or simply being a copycat, as others have accused him of being, Lichtenstein defended his work by saying that he was unifying his source materials with fine art, saying, quote, I am nominally copying, but I am really restating the copied thing in other terms, in doing that, the original acquires a totally different texture. It's dots and flat colors and unyielding lines, end quote. And it's true. You could make the argument that there's nothing less artistic in the transference of a comic book heroine onto a canvas than of a sitter into a portrait or a field into a landscape all require the application of paint and the subjectivity of the artist. In the mid-60s, Lichtenstein fired back at his critics and what they considered to be acceptable high art at the time, abstract expressionism, with his own series of brushstroke paintings, which used the brushstroke, the very thing he was seen to have abandoned, as the subject matter. The thick, heavy, sculptural brushstrokes against a background of Day dots poked fun at the critics' acceptance of Pollock but rejection of Pop, at the critics' reverence of the brushstroke as the umbilical cord to the hand of the artist, when an equally talented artist's idea might leave no actual trace on the canvas. Furthermore, painting a brushstroke was, in his words, quote, a way to take something ephemeral and make it concrete. He seems to have had a knack for that. It's interesting to think about where Lichtenstein sits in art history, especially now that we're so used to the idea that high art and low art are interwoven. We see him as holding his rightful place in the canon, but it's hard won. He wasn't that popular in his own time. In 1964, Life magazine went so far as to ask if he was the quote-unquote worst artist in the United States. And his painting, Masterpiece from 1962, which sold in 2017 for $165 million at Christie's, 
poked fun at his own reputation and his own anxieties, both in the painting's depiction of a confident blonde attempting to buck up her sullen hunk, who of course is also named Brad, with promises that, quote, all of New York will be clamoring for your work, and the fact that the source material for this painting originally depicted a silent blonde turning nervously to her boyfriend with the thought bubble caption, someday this bitterness will pass. And while he eventually won over the high end of the art world, the cartooning world still tends to hold him somewhat at arm's length. After all, elevating a subject doesn't necessarily mean you're moving it forward. And as the trailblazing cartoonist Art Spiegelman said, quote, Lichtenstein did no more or less for comics than Andy Warhol did for soup. But his work did ultimately pave the way for a conversation where both sides are given equal weight. It's a post-Lichtenstein world that allows artists and cartoonists to think about what each has to offer one another. For a Calvin and Hobbes strip to question its own artistic legitimacy, for writers like Frank Miller and Alan Moore to revolutionize the graphic novel, for a comic to be both read and contemplated, and to exist at the intersection of boom, 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 funny and wham, bam, pow art. Special thanks to Dana Gerber-Margie of the Bello Collective, which you should absolutely check out at bellacollective.com, and to the intrepid museum goers at the Art Institute of Chicago. For more information, go to thelonelypalette.com, or follow us on Twitter, at Lonely Palette, or on Instagram, at The Lonely Palette, or like us on Facebook. And please, if you are a fan of the show, tell the world by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And consider supporting us on Patreon in exchange for some sweet, sweet swag at www.patreon.com slash lonelypalette. The Lonely Palette is a proud founding member of Hub & Spoke, a new collective of idea-driven podcasts. Check out the most recent episode of Hub & Spoker Wade Rausch's Soonish, which explores everything you could possibly want to know about glass but was afraid to ask. And seriously, you won't believe how fascinating and beautiful this stuff is, but no spoilers. So listen to it at soonishpodcast.org.